This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking in. Welcome to Common Decency. I'm Howie Kahn. On this episode, we check in with artist Tom Sachs, who recently joined me from his Manhattan studio. There, Tom and his team focus on practice and process to create everything from painting and sculpture to manuals like 10 bullets and installations about traveling to outer space. Our conversation has that kind of wide range too, as we get into everything from drive and vision to leadership and parenthood. Because Tom's work and his development as a human depends largely on his team, we'll also hear from his steadfast studio director, Aram Shaw. Tom Sachs, hello. Hey, Howie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here on Common Decency. Tom Sachs. You have a new show in in London. It's called... Ritual. Ritual is not a, a new pursuit for you. It's uh, more or less the backbone of your studio practice and maybe your entire life. I'm, I'm wondering what the origin is for you of the importance of ritual and, and when did you decide to make that a central theme in your work or did it decide for you? Well, it's it's rituals in everything and every artist has their own rituals. But I think this show was a way of I almost could have called the show streets, but I, that words like so many other great words like meditation and uh, sustainability have been polluted by um, imitators. And for me, the, the, the ritual show is about the, the rituals that I experience on the street, mainly the bodega or walking down the street. I always met my lovers on the street. And I, my first image of Sarah is her walking down the street on Worcester Street in super high like Aliyah heels with a leash with a all black bulldog and like her silhouette, her figure long and lean with a string attached to this like nugget anim- animal black silhouette against the Soho cobblestones is forever in my mind of like the, that's like my first image of her. So it's, it's romantic, but it's also the materials that I find on the streets. So, all of these traditions or rituals have long roots in, in my life in Soho for the past 30 something years. And I think it was, it was high time to do a show that was just a sculpture show, no paintings, no weird performance art, no movies, just about me and my relationship with stuff and, and these objects. Was ritual consciously part of your art practice first, or was it part of your life as as a human? Like, were you a boy with lots of rituals surrounding play and toys and and schooling and trouble? No, I think that rituals are are only developed authentically over time. So I, I was a I had I was in trouble, and I think the things that I did ritualistically as a boy were like watch TV. I didn't really have a I didn't have, I didn't find my calling until quite late. Like I didn't, you know, I was a, I was a bad student and I was always in conflict and I wasn't good at sports. And it was really only when I got into college that I started to find my calling. And then only then did work become ritualized and it was sculpture and spending time in the studio, endless hours there every day. And I kind of haven't really stopped. I mean, I don't really take days off. I, there are days when I don't make things, but I, it's like I'm living in sin 
What do you mean? Well, if I'm not making something, I'm not living right. I'm not, I'm not being the best version of me. It's kind of like a vampire that has to drink blood every day, even if it's just killing a rat or something, just has to taste it. Otherwise, um, the vampire develops flu-like symptoms. I'm the same way. If I spend too many days away from the studio, I don't make something, even a drawing or something out of tape. I don't, I don't, I don't feel right. That's what I mean by living in sin. I don't, I'm not, I'm not my best self because I was made to make sculpture. And that's why like the ritual, it's, it's, it's very organic and authentic for me to spend time making stuff. Yeah. Over the course of, of the last year, I would say a lot of people have struggled because their rituals and their lives were interrupted by a pandemic and they've had to shift, you know, the entire way they, they do things. How did the pandemic uh, disrupt your rituals and how did you correct for that so you could continue to get your fix? Well, uh, it really fucked up my studio. Um, you know, there are 20 of us, but Aram and Sam did an unbelievable job of bureaucratizing the studio during that time or administrating the studio. So they, we had a process where I would make, start a sculpture, an Uber would pick it up, deliver it to Steven, who would then pick it up from, who would work on it and do electronics wiring and then deliver it uh, by Uber to, to Claire, who would do some spray painting on it, who would then Uber it to, to um, Ava, who would meet the photographer Genevieve at the studio, who would photograph it and we could send it out. We managed to keep the studio of 20 people going um, at, you know, not peak efficiency, but we were able to make some things happen during that time. And I'm, I'm really proud of my team's willing uh, dedication to keeping everyone working and the willingness to work out of their garages, basements, and kitchens during this time. So we had full sort of employment. Uber must have loved you. Uh, they did. And I have a friend who's a, a Columbia University educated weed dealer. And he said it was great because he could con conduct business in a way like never before. And he kept so many households from going full shining by delivering psilocybin and my household included. And it really like it was a gesture of peace. Huh, that's incredible. It's interesting. I think I was spending so much time thinking about what was going on in my own home that I maybe didn't consider what was being ferried throughout New York City throughout that pandemic, whether it's microdoses of, of magic mushrooms or fine art that's going to go on to be shown in, you know, London and Paris. Yeah, I feel like I feel like it was there's a silver lining. And, and as hard as it was, there were some great moments of just spending more I got to spend more time with my family and I if I'm to be honest I, I did a lot of little things but mainly I worked on two big collages I'll be showing this this fall in Hamburg we can talk about that another time but during the space program but I spent a lot of time on a on a, on a fewer things and my schedule is much more regimented and that kind of ritual is um it's rewarding Right, which is not really like you at all. At the studio, you're always bouncing between a zillion different things that are going on simultaneously. So it's a way of rewiring your entire brain by changing the work pattern. Yeah, it's great. And the mushrooms. I mean, I, I don't think I, I didn't even do microdosing. I, I, I just did a, like a little bit here and there, kind of the way you'd use a Valium when things got really stressful. Mm-hmm. 
was when I started to and I use it as like a a relief valve. How has your interest in in space evolved over the years from when you first hooked into it as an artist? Well, I was born in 66, so I was old enough to witness some of the television coverage of lunar launches and then certainly I grew up with a shuttle. So I was kind of always interested in it, but I also after Apollo the the shuttle and ISS kind of was like lost a lot of its thrill because it just was kind of getting progressively less exciting. And also the storytelling that NASA used and still uses is pretty lame. Like it doesn't really, for all the incredible things that it does, doesn't really capture the imagination of the public. It sucks. Yet if you start to research Apollo stuff, the, 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 crowdsource information on that era is fantastic. If you go to like my secret, people always ask me about how I get all this information. My secret is go to Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. That's the archive of everything Apollo. And I mean, I even worked with NASA a little bit to try and get some better storytelling going and was just really thwarted by the bureaucracy. It's like a government agency. And, um, Friends that I have there are mostly at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and these are the most sophisticated people I've ever met. And, you know, Greg Vane, one of them said, one of the problems that we have is getting a mission budgeted, paid for, and launched in four years because the next administration might squash it. Or gamble, and then it's eight years. But, but going to other worlds takes generations. So I think that's why we haven't landed on Europa yet, which is the which is the holy grail of and it's it's very likely that it'll happen in our lifetime that we'll land on Europa and we will see Well you've la- you've landed on Europa. We yes, we landed on Europa and we found life there. We found crawfish under the surface of Europa. How many space missions have you have you done? So we we've done 3. We did the moon in 2007 at Gagosian Gallery, Mars 2011 at Park Avenue Armory, and then um, Europa 2017 at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. And then this fall, we'll be going to the asteroid known as 4 Vesta, uh, which is between Mars and Jupiter. It's a giant asteroid. It's like the size of Pluto. It's got a differentiated core, and we're pretty sure that it's a good place to go if you're looking for gold and platinum because you've run out of those elements here on earth to make cell phones so we're going to go there to look for materials for making cell phones because we now are making a 1.5 billion cell phones a year you're going to need more precious metals yeah rare earths that's the name of our mission rare earths uh, there's a reason I, I bring this up that's kind of relevant to, to this year. People being locked inside for the most part. The idea of a large public art installation, I think, is going to mean something completely different than it did last year, two years ago. How do you anticipate crowds are going to receive this? What do you think it's going to mean to people? Well, I don't know where Germany's going to be in September. The ritual of the space program and going to another world is in a way the ultimate ritual because it's there's so much rehearsal and practice and, st- and stuff going on. It's, it's, it starts with us and our team. You know, it starts with 
me and and our, our astronauts and our team of 20 people and extends to the museum community and includes you howie and 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 all of you and all of your listeners um who've listened far enough into this that they're that they care about what's being said but it starts with the core you know when i was i think i've told you this before but it's worth repeating i was at the met and and looking at all the art and i noticed that everything was made by someone like me for a client like a pope or a pharaoh or a hedge fund dude or whatever except for all the stuff in the oceana section it was made by someone like me for other people like me in other words it was like a in 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 west african art it was made the things were made by people for other people in their community to do activities, religious, ritual, like navigation, hunting, whatever you want to call it. And I, I, when, I, when I came to that realization many years ago, I realized like, it's not that I want to make African art. I want to make art that works the way that does instead of the way the, the model that I'm in, which is that I make stuff for as a, financial instrument or as instrument of trade or, or status. So the objects that I make are for us, for the studio, and hopefully people can come from the audience, from the world and see it. It sounds like you also want people to have fun, which is not something I've ever heard an artist directly say. Yeah. What's up with that? Why am I, why is that so unusual? I mean, I, that's a priority for me. What, I don't understand why others don't see that. It seems really obvious. I imagine someone like Bob Marley writing a song, be like, yeah, people are going to think this is fun. I, I, I bet that's like, I don't know, maybe he wouldn't necessarily use those words. And, you know, he's making the songs for himself and for his band and then for his, for his audience. But it starts with yourself. It's got to be, if it's fun for you, it's fun for everyone else. But I suspect that a lot of artists don't love their art. <laughs> Yeah, that might be right. If it's not fun for them, how could it be fun for anybody else? Yeah, like I'm a huge Donald Judd fan, but I, I wonder what it was like if you right. could ask him, is this, are you having fun doing this? Like I've seen you work. I know you have a good time doing it. Your studio is a, a, a fun place to visit. But, you know, I, I spent time with Saul Lewitt when he was alive and he had fun doing doing that stuff. Well, his but work I, looks a little more fun. It's It's way more fun because he could really like indulge in the permutations of math. And that's like, that's art. And I think... You know, there's a huge diversity, even though you can you can really t- always tell that it's a Saul. There's, and the, the logic of what he did was consistent for decades, but he would just like sit in the studio and like doodle and draw and doodle with math and, and set out these these guidelines and rules. And I think I think he had fun. I, I'd like to think Marcel Duchamp had fun. I would. I, I hope so. If you're making a lobster phone, you should be having fun. <laughs> I want to ask you, what do you know about leading a team now that you didn't know last year? This, this is a little personal, but I have to take this opportunity to give some mad props to Aram and Serena and Sam and Shalom and everyone who worked on helping me to become a better person. One of the things that I struggle with is I get really frustrated when an idea that I have doesn't exist in the world. So I become very passionate to realize it. This is my superpower and my kryptonite. I won't stop until it comes to life. This is why I'm a successful person. But it's also kind of like sometimes I leave a trail of destruction and I'm not really very patient with other 
people. And I always loved Alex DeLarge in Clockwork Orange, the rapist, murderer, psychopath. Not for his horrible acts, acts but for his just blind indulgence and just wanting stuff and making it happen. Of course, he did things that I could never imagine doing because it was always at the expense of others. But that kind of, you almost need a certain degree of psychopathic uh, detachment to realize things. And the, the, the problem with that is it comes at human costs, which is unacceptable. So trying to find that balance of um, getting it done and just making it fun for those around you. Like I, you know, I just watched Spaceship Earth. Did you watch Spaceship Earth yet? I haven't watched it yet, no. It's about um, Biosphere 2. Mm -hmm. And it talks a lot about the leader of Biosphere 2, the guy who thought it up. And he was a theater director. And he, before that, made a great big boat and did all kinds of like hippie architecture in the desert. And basically he was a community leader. And it talks about his successes and failures and strengths and weaknesses as an individual. I don't know. I, I think I think before this time, I didn't really um, think about that stuff so much. I just was kind of going with the flow. And I think that it's just important to be um, gentle with people. Could be a new a new bullet. Gentleness. Maybe. Aaron, what do you think of that? Gentleness as a new bullet? Yeah, I like that. Because I think gentleness can mean a lot of things. It doesn't have to mean like, it doesn't have to mean soft. It doesn't have to mean you don't work hard. I think that you do have a gentle side. It's the part that like can empathize and take a moment and absorb. And I think sometimes gentleness, just people think it means you're rolling over, but that's not what it means. And yeah. I think you have this ability to redefine that. Yeah, you don't need to, conf you don't need to confuse kindness with weakness that's it that's the bullet yeah i i think there's real strength to to gentleness and and even softness and embracing those characteristics of of really understanding other people it doesn't make you a pushover at all it, it it's hard especially when simultaneously you have to constantly constantly be faced with not taking no for an answer and uh, this is a this is a common thing. Whenever we're doing any engineering thing that's new, I'm always met engineers always tell me how it can't be done, and so I'm always trying to convince people that are more qualified technically than I am to do something, and they don't want to do it because they they don't see it. But the the role of the artist is to see stuff that other people don't see and communicate in a way to them how to see it. In other words, like a rendering of something that doesn't exist. That's why you hire an artist to do a rendering of the building, and then you make the blueprints from it and you raise the money and you build it. But this is a, this is a problem that we have, whether it's trying to bring an idea to the other NASA that the one that we all pay taxes for, or um, even just getting a pair of custom prescription eyeglasses made that don't meet this, this, the standards of what's readily available. Do you find something wrong with every single object you buy? Yeah, usually. But when I find something that's perfect, I always buy three of them because that only happens like once every three years. What was the last perfect thing you found? This chicken sandwich in Connecticut a few days ago that was pretty Seriously? good. Seriously? Where? Yeah. In Washington, Connecticut. 
That was pretty unbelievable. Um, Are we talking like a a roadside chicken sandwich or like an April Bloomfield chicken sandwich? Sure, it was more of an April Bloomfield (laughs) style thing. I don't know. I think food for you is always about the moment. I've noticed sometimes you're hungry and you'll have the most humble thing but it's just the moment in which you're eating it, I think makes it more special to you sometimes because you've dined at the finest places. I think it's always about the moment for you. Like that place in Lyon where Chris Beeson fell asleep and there was like an accordion and a little person and a monkey playing an accordion. Yeah, because that like made it a, like a, a thing or that terrible diner in, in Norwich. Oh my God. Oh, um, Butch, Butch's. Butch's Breakfast Club. Oh, that place is unbelievable. Um, Great name. Yeah, go to Butch's Breakfast Club. Everyone in Norwich, Connecticut. It's only open till 11 a.m., but you can smoke there. But, I, yeah, I'm trying to think of something that I that I love that's perfect. I mean, I'm really into, like, I think golden acrylic paints are perfect. I'm looking around the room right now. You know, we our fanny pack that we make is the perfect fanny pack. It's the best fanny pack that money can buy. And there are only a few of them left on the website. And I can't believe people haven't snatched them up because they're so good. It'll yeah. change the way you, because we always, now we have to carry so much shit because mm-hmm. you kind of have to have your phone. It's kind of a big thing. Like you could, you know, depending where you live, you could maybe not have a key. You could a fanny a pack takes care of so much too, especially, I mean, you have a young kid as well. And just, especially as a parent, just those little things. As a parent, you're always searching for tiny little things. There's no moment in your day as a father of a small child, when you're not searching for the smallest item possible, where you're not given the task of find the smallest Lego, find the fingernail of my dinosaur. Yeah. And Sarah has like, she's got one of her fanny packs like dedicated to like the baby going fanny pack. And all this is just like one diaper, a small thing of wipes. I mean, and a cheese stick, like what else do you really need? How does having a child inform being an artist or change being an artist? You know, it's funny. We have like, I I was just telling Aaron before that my, my new career is I just want to spend half my time administrating my, my studio and the other half building toys for for my son. And I think the main thing that it's really caused is is that I have it is it's, it's really given me a sense of my mortality like nothing else. Like how much time, how little time is left. And like how how few books I'll have left to read, how much time I have, you know, left with this body. And so it makes me a little more selective. Like I've made a lot of stuff that wasn't important to my path like a you know my path as an artist isn't a straight line it's a serpentine and i think this has helped me get a little more narrow in my path so you know for example this year is like my uh first year that i did a sculpture only show that's the one that's opening right now before that i did a painting only show at aquavella gallery and i always made different I always made my shows, they're always Gesamtkunstwerk. They were always like painting, sculpture, performance, drawings, filmmaking, whatever, like the space program is, is all those things. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, it was in, in some ways like maybe an act of insecurity. Like I didn't, the sculptures weren't good enough. So there was some aspect in a painting that I'd have to apply or I did a painting and I didn't, there was something missing. So I made a sculpture to represent that idea. But I've really committed to these different bodies of work now. This is like something I'm gonna try and do more because they're successful both both of these shows like on my terms 
And uh, I also think it's easier for a viewer to come in to, to step into my world and see, okay, well, these are weird, but what are, okay, they're paintings, got it. And then within that, they can struggle with the ideas. Whereas other, earlier, they'd be like, what is this? Is it painting? Is it sculpture? Is this harder? Where do they buy all this stuff? People even think sometimes when they come to my studio, where do you get all this stuff? And I have to explain to them that I made all this stuff. But they're like, well, they, no, you didn't because that's something that like is in my kitchen too. So it, it takes a lot to explain all that. And I think it's very important to make things really clear. And that's true for children too, because they're really smart, but it's all new to them. They're smarter than you think, but they are also way more ignorant than you think. So they, they, it's, it's about keeping things simple, not unnecessarily simple, but clear and clear boundaries so they can build on it. And then through clear boundaries in different categories, start to commingle those boundaries and understand more complex ideas. I understand what you're saying. I think children demand clarity. And if you're always trying to present things in clear terms to your children, whether or not you're effective at it 100% of the time or even 80% of the time, it does seep into the other parts of your life. You are clarifying everything for a smaller being and you end up doing it for yourself too. It's very cool. It's, it's, it's very cool. So your first sculpture show, that's really an incredible thing to think about. You've had so many shows. What do you feel is at stake for you with this one and with each new show? With this show, Ritual, I'm really digging into what I do best, which is make sculptures. I remember I had a critique with a painter, Pat Adams. I don't know if you know her, but she's like an, an abstract um, painter, probably more well-known in the 1970s, but very well-respected, very intelligent, wonderful woman, very kind and sensitive and tough and I had some sculpture that had a bunch of political things on it probably had a McDonald's sign and some baby heads or whatever but she pointed apart she, she said look at the um the way you did these wells and you painted these materials these colors they're not part of the um political agenda this isn't journalism yet you have all this ability there isn't that the funnest part and I said yeah of course that's what I love to do she said yeah but why are you wasting all this time with all your uh, journalism and to try and tell the story this this political commentary about what these things mean in the world and i argued with her that i um i had a sense of responsibility I, I wanted to tell the story of how i saw the world in a way it could be a better place and uh i think i don't know I, maybe she was arguing for like her the way she did art but I think the, the point that she was trying to make is that maybe it's worth it to indulge some of your talents sometimes, like that people can learn more about how to make the world a better place just by you doing what you do best and not trying to do too many different things at once. So I always think of Louis Armstrong. He's the real genius for me of the 20th century. He's the, he's the one. He's like by far the number one because and people talk about Picasso and I, I don't want to argue that because it's like apples and oranges, like comparing Picasso and Louis Armstrong, like they're different people and you can't. But I think the thing that Louis did was that he had a, he had a, a new idea and a new way of telling it simultaneously. Those are two ideas. It's very hard to do them both at once. And I think that's why I, I, I love that work and he, and he did it so simply. 
So I, you know, try and take one thing at a time and, 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 and sometimes combine them. I think sometimes they're successful. So like, for example, there's a, I always make everything sort of really rough hewn so you can see how it was made that I was, there's evidence here. It's not like an Apple product or some seamlessly made object with no evidence of human hands. You know, that you can see the glue drips and wood cuts and cum stains and screw heads and everything. And then I'm trying to tell the story of the objects that I want to exist in the world. You know, show, show, on one side, show the evidence of how it was made, but also make the world not the way it is, but the way I want it to be. So I think the, the more I show my hand and the more I show my individuality, it's probably the most fun for me personally. And also maybe it's the thing that has the most like resonance because I could never make something as perfect as an Apple product. I mean, I guess I could argue on a, on a larger scale, you know, the shoes you've made with Nike are very much embraced in, you know, in the design world and, and people who care about that kind of industrial, you know, design uh, that's on par with an Apple product, I think for sure. Not, not at the same scale because, you know, the releases are, are limited, but you know, you think about people going nuts for, for a product, you've done it in that way. Well, we, I, that wasn't the intention. I mean, I think we made few of them because we didn't have, we were new, we we're just starting. No one, we didn't, I don't think any of us thought we, that it would be as successful as it was. And we're working on reaching more people. And, but even within that product, we, you know, we are always trying to make things that show the evidence, not of maybe how it was made, but how it was used. So like those shoes are made in colors that show their wear and, and they're made in colors that, that show like the, or the native colors of those materials like polyurethane or rubber or pigskin undyed. So in a way I'm trying to bring some of those values into the industrial design work. Our show is called Common Decency. And I, I think, you know, your 10 bullets and your paradox bullets express that idea too. It's an organizing system for treating each other with respect and, and treating work with, with respect. There's one of the bullets that I, I keep coming back to and you know, sometimes I, I read this book for help. And, you know, the first one is, I think a lot of people do. The first one is sacred space. And it's a topic that seems to be really relevant right now. What does it mean for you to be creating sacred space for, for yourself and for others? I think that bullet came from trips to Japan where I saw expensive spaces and poor spaces all being treated the same. And I think what that really means is respect your environment, respect the environment of others around you. Take care of your stuff, take care of your body and take care of your planet. A lot of the time in the studio, I don't know what I'm doing. Like writer's block. So I spend time knowing my space, organizing it, making it just so, so that when the inspiration strikes, I don't have to like look for my pencil. And maintaining sacred space is a, is a good way to get some of those benefits that people talk about when they talk about meditation. I don't like the word meditation because like I said, it's been contaminated, but the ideas behind it are fantastic. And and, and just to somehow just to think about stuff is really important and to clear your mind is, is good. And when your mind wanders, that's okay too. 
And there are all kinds of tricks and methods to making meditation or find, putting yourself in the meditative state that work. And the, one of the best ones I know is cleaning. And because it's the kind of thing that you can do in many different ways, you can do it obsessively, you can do it casually, you can do it while you're doing something else. And there are also different kinds of cleaning, like there's deep cleaning and superficial cleaning, and there's simply nulling, which is just organizing the stuff around your space. I find that by making my space sacred and protecting it, I'm grounding myself in, the, in, in my environment to allow myself to feel more comfortable to let the ideas and the power ideas flow through me and let my intuition kind of ooze out into a place where it can be cultivated. Because a lot of the ideas that we have, like making your own space program, don't really make a lot of sense externally. It's only when they're imbued with force and care and attention that they come to life. And I think that could be said of anything, not just what I do. That was Tom Sachs. His new show, Ritual, will be up at Thaddeus Ropak Gallery in London through July 31st. And his all-new space program exhibition will open in Hamburg, Germany in September. For reservations at The Nomad London, it's www.thenomadhotel.com London. Thank you for listening to Common Decency. Our show is produced by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our theme music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Aram Shaw, Carrie Phillips, Andrew Zobler, Isadora McKeon, Kristen Millar, and Stefan Merriweather. Common Decency will return soon with a brand new guest. This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking out 